0: Hello, and welcome to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about the world of journalism. I'm Pete Vernon, a Delacorte Fellow here at CJR, and your host for this period of OJ Free Media. This week, we run through some of the biggest stories, business mergers past and potentially future, the uses and abuses of anonymous sources, and Donald Trump's love-hate relationship with the press. Then we'll call on our boss, CJR editor and publisher Kyle Pope, who's got some things to get off his chest concerning the approach that journalists are taking to the administration. Let's get to it. I'm joined again by two of my favorite colleagues. On my left, senior editor, Christy Chisholm. Hey, Christy. Hello. And on my right, Delacorte fellow, Meg Dalton. How's it going, Meg? Going great. Good to have you guys back. We're going to start today with a business issue for our industry, um, one that has been affecting some of the biggest companies in the media sphere, which is consolidation. We've had some major companies like Comcast, Verizon, and Sinclair grow stronger through acquisitions. AT&T and Time Warner have been circling themselves for months now. And then this week, we learned that Discovery and Scripps are in merger talks, which would bring together a bunch of television channels that I don't watch, like HGTV the Food Network, OWN. This would create another big media conglomerate, the type of which we're seeing occur all across the industry. And this has caused some concern among people who pay as much attention to this stuff as we do. So, Christy, what's the issue with these type of mergers, these type of acquisitions?
1: There are a few issues. One issue, of course, is that it's just like less control over editorial content across the board, less original reporting happening across the board. You have a large corporation dictating content for many smaller newsrooms and just in just basic terms, it
2: concentrates the power in the hands of just a few.
0: And the danger there is that you have editorial oversight from above, which doesn't happen, we should say, at every operation. But it, there's a danger that with too few voices in the field, you don't get the what diversity of opinion that we're looking for.
2: One of the most troubling examples right now is the Sinclair Broadcast Group, which is the, I think, largest owner of local TV stations nationally.
0: Yeah, 173 stations. It's mostly small cities, but they do have some bigger uh, properties in places like Pittsburgh and Salt Lake City. They've tried to buy a Tribune Media Company, which has television stations in some of the biggest cities in the country, including New York, and that's caused some concern because of Sinclair's ownership and its editorial direction, kind of what you were talking about, Christy, the idea of kind of dictating from the top what sort of programming is going to appear on these local news stations.
1: Definitely. And if that merger goes through, that means that combined between Sinclair and Tribune Media, like together, they would have the largest number of stations in the U.S., period. So So more
0: Boris Epstein for everybody. And
2: Mark (laughs) Hyman. Exactly. Oh, my God. Hyman is the worst. The thing about, like, Boris versus Mark Hyman is at least Boris, like, we knew that he was part of the administration. Right. Right. We
0: should say that Boris Epstein was for a time, a short time, a member of the Trump administration, a childhood friend of one of the sons, Don or Eric, yeah. I forget which one. Yeah, so it's, one. like,
2: very clear where his politics right. fall. Where someone like Mark Hyman was one of the top executives of the Sinclair Broadcast Group. And now he has his own, like, conservative commentary segment that they distribute to the local channels.
0: Yeah, they run these yeah. segments called yeah. must-runs that these networks in places as liberal-leaning as Seattle, uh, as conservative as Little Rock, have to run.
2: They're injecting conservative politics in, like, local television. Like, they're injecting their political views into local broadcasts.
0: Yeah. And it's not always clear, I guess, where that direction is coming from, right? People say this could be an ABC network, it could be Fox, it could be NBC or CBS. It's it's not clear all the time as it is when you're turning into MSNBC and getting a liberal view or turning into Fox News when you get a conservative view. It's, it's not clear that this is directed from the top and pretty slanted in one direction.
1: And the biggest concern, I think, too, is how much it affects local news stations because local news, I mean, you know, media trust in general is kind of at like a low right now, but local news actually still retains a fair amount of trust with its, like, you know, audience. And so the fact that these local news stations are now being directed to produce these segments that are very politically oriented. People have more trust in their
2: local news anchors or local reporters because there's like a, there's somebody you might see at the grocery stores.
0: This is something that federal oversight agencies are going to look into as we move forward. The deals haven't been approved yet. Uh, Some of them are not even official. This Discovery Scripts is still just a rumor. The AT&T acquisition of Time Warner is something that has been talked about for months now, but hasn't yet occurred. And I know this can seem, again, somewhat removed from people's 6 p.m. evening news, but it is something that will have an impact across the country, on the options that people have. Next up, I've been told by someone with knowledge of the situation that anonymous sources are in the news. Uh, I know we all kind of devoured this series of articles by Perry Bacon Jr. at 538 who did a really nice job explaining why journalists use anonymous sources and how you as readers or we as readers um, can kind of parse the language and figure out what to trust. Christy, what are anonymous sources? Why are they necessary? And Is there validity to Trump and the administration's complaints about the use of these sources?
1: Well, anonymous sources, I mean, that's like a a huge Is it the right word to call them anonymous? It's an an umbrella term, certainly, because not all anonymous sources are created equal. So that's one reason why this reporting by Perry Bacon Jr. is like so great, um, because he really does a nice job of distilling down the different kinds of anonymous sources that reporters talk to, who's more reliable, how you as a reader can kind of read between the lines when anonymous sources are being quoted and figure out what the most reliable reporting out there is. But yeah, you brought up a good point, which Is is anonymous really the right word? Meg, earlier you brought up something saying that I don't remember who it was. Oh, yeah. Um, The
2: Washington Post executive editor Len Downey recently was on CNN's Reliable Sources, and he was essentially uh, saying that he refers to anonymous sources as confidential sources now
0: because he knows who they are right. or the reporter at least yeah. knows who so these are
2: yeah so the reasoning behind that is the reporters and the editors involved in the story know who the person is so they're not anonymous they're just confidential for some reason or another
1: I think that's a really interesting kind of recharacterization of what anonymous sources really are um, because it's all about connotation, right? So someone reads the word anonymous and it makes you think about who the source is. Like, wow, well, how do we know that the source really is who they say they are? I would say most intelligent news consumers don't think that reporters are sitting behind the scenes making up sources. So I don't think that they read the word like anonymous and they think, oh, this reporter is just like bullshitting me. I think that they worry about the integrity of the source themselves. So, you know, changing the phrasing of that and just using the word confidential, I mean, it is just a psychological, you know, tool. But I think that the connotation with confidential is a lot closer to the truth.
0: Reporters understand and and sympathize with the readers who say, I don't trust a story based on anonymous sources as much as I do when you can put a name to that quote. And I sympathize with readers for that, right? And that's one of the reasons that this Perry Bacon Jr. piece was so good was because he kind of gave five rules for how you should read these type of stories. Um, I'm going to run through a few of them here because I do think it's good advice. He says, when you have multiple sources, when the New York Times can say, this reporting is based on interviews with seven different Justice Department officials, that is you know, the sort of reporting you can trust more than just a source close to the story says, right? Seven is better than one. He also has a line, trust a source who says something happened, distrust a source who says something might happen.
1: Well, no one's great at predicting the
0: future. Um, And then another one is trust specificity, because reporters do kind of negotiate with sources and they will often provide some clues as to who's giving this information, right? Three senior advisors to the president are a better indication that these people know what they're talking about than White House officials. Definitely. And
2: one of my favorite ones that he that he mentioned, too, was looking for, like, non-denial denials. So the response of, say, you know, Sean Spicer or someone from the White House uh, regarding a story.
0: Yeah. Not saying that story is untrue and these are the facts that are wrong. But the real problem here is leakers. And we should say this isn't unique to the Trump White House. This isn't unique to specific reporting from the last six months or so. This is a problem that's gone on forever. We just have a lot of leaks coming out of Washington right now. So, And we have a president that's attacking the practice. And that's why it's something that is more in the news, perhaps, than it has been in the past. But it's an issue that past New York Times public editors have certainly written about. And it's something, again, that journalists try to avoid.
2: And Definitely. I think the one thing that is just kind of concerning is is the fact that, you know, President Trump you know, does have a massive following. When he tweets something that equates anonymous sources to being made up, that is detrimental to a free press
0: nice transition into our next topic, which is that Trump's crusade against anonymous sources is just one part of his battle with the media. And we'll hear from Kyle in a minute about why he thinks we as journalists are approaching some of our coverage of the administration in perhaps not the most productive ways. But since he's not here right now, let's talk about one specific aspect of the media's relationship with Trump, which is that he seems to love the New York Times. Uh, Yesterday, he sat down in the Oval Office with Peter Baker, uh, Michael Schmidt, and Maggie Haberman and gave them almost an hour of his time to talk about a wide range of issues. So what came out of that meeting, first of all?
2: I mean, there are two kind of big bombshells, and I I hate using that word bombshell, but I'm going to use it anyways. One being the criticism uh, of Jeff Sessions for recusing himself during the Russia investigation, and the other being kind of like this low-key, sort of not low-key warning to Robert Mueller of his oversight of said investigation.
0: That he didn't want him to dig into the Trump family business, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then earlier today, we had a report from Bloomberg that that's exactly what Mueller is going to do. So we'll see where that heads and if there are any consequences. All of that was big news, uh, led the New York Times today. But what we kind of want to dig into is what this says about Trump's love-hate relationship with the press.
1: Well, I think that it just shows that it's all a marketing gimmick, but I don't think that that's new information. I mean, if, if Trump actually believed what he espouses, which is that the New York Times is, like, failing and full of fake news and just not to be trusted and always out there to slander him and, like, whatever, he wouldn't invite three reporters to come into the Oval Office and hang out with him and chat about all of his travels for an hour, basically. He did. I have his, a quote of, yeah.
0: of one of them. He said, I've <laughs> (laughs) had the best reviews on foreign land. So I go to Poland and make a speech. Enemies of mine in the media, enemies of mine are saying it was the greatest speech ever made on foreign soil by a president. I don't know if that part of it is true. And it's interesting in reading the transcript, which we should say the New York Times did. They posted not just the transcript, but the audio, which is great. He seems to have this, especially with Maggie Haberman, this easy kind of breezy relationship and conversation to put that up against calling them the failing New York Times and calling the media the enemy of the American people it's just so disingenuous
2: well you know I don't know if enemy is the right word to quote like my 13 year old
0: cousin that's the word he used I know
2: but to quote like my 13 year old cousin maybe it's like frenemy (laughs) <laughs>
0: <Like
1: frenemies. laughs> he's the frenemy of the American people. You know, certainly <laughs> the
0: frenemy, frenemy, of, Trump, of, Trump, yeah. the the frenemy of Trump
1: What I wish though so like I don't think that this is, you know, revelatory for anybody who works in the news business. Like we all know that like his rants against like the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN or whatever, it's all disingenuous. Like because he really just wants media attention and he's just like working the angle to kind of, you know, Want a place appeal to the base, to right? his base. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. absolutely. But what I what I what I wish is that any of this got through to his base like how that's what I want to know like how are how is his base not recognizing that he's saying one thing and then doing another thing when it comes to talking to reporters
2: I think like that kind of brings up a good point which is like this speaks I think more to his character than anything else
1: I mean, politicians are always going to try to manipulate the media to their advantage, and they're always going to try to speak to their base. So there's that. It's just that his base is so extreme. It's so far off of what a presidential base has been in, I don't know, my memory at least, and certainly recent memory.
0: does and, seem hard to reconcile those two approaches, right? Yeah. The, the attacks on the media with this obvious need to have the approval of his hometown paper of record.
1: I mean, Trump is just a he's just a, a walking media marketing campaign.
0: I mean, well, that's just- we should acknowledge there's something in this for beyond the idea of just the news that breaks the important news about his views on the Justice Department's independence. This is a huge coup for The Times, and it comes with a series of news stories that are really important in nature. It also comes with some moments of levity in the midst of this.
2: I think we can all agree that the best moment from the entire interview was when President Trump went on and on about how much the French president loves holding his hand.
1: (laughs) I know. That was my (laughs) favorite part. He mentioned it like (laughs) three times in like 30 seconds. But he really does love holding my hand. You'll see. And I mean, yeah. Yeah, here's the quote. He's a
0: great guy. Speaking of Emmanuel Macron. He's a great guy, smart, strong. Loves holding my hand. And Maggie Haberman said, I've noticed. Trump again. People don't realize. He loves holding my hand, and that's good. Oh,
1: yeah. Tell you something. I think you understand.
3: Joining
0: me now are master and commander, a scholar and gentleman, the guy who signs my paychecks, editor and publisher of CJR, Kyle Pope. In the office over the last couple weeks, I've noticed that you seem a bit frustrated is that the right word? Agitated. Yeah. With the way the media has approached this administration, how it's covering Trump, you were on CNN, Brian Stelter's show a couple weeks ago talking about our obsession with his tweets and how maybe it's time to move on from that. What are your specific concerns with how we're approaching this administration?
3: I'm sort of tired of the storyline. You know, I think as I, I have to keep reminding myself, we're only six months into this. And, you know, we've all been through sort of a period of shock, um, especially those of us in the media. We're not used to having the president of the United States yelling at us every day. And that was like a stunning thing. And it it was actually scary. And it was important. But he's kept doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And I think we've reached the point where we have to sort of rethink and recalibrate and say, okay, so if the president says we're fake or we're enemies or we make stuff up, and he says it over and over and over again, if he says it yet another time, the exact same thing, do we have to cover it with the same volume and with the same intensity? And I think the answer increasingly is no. I think it's getting repetitive.
0: Yeah, I struggle with that because I understand what you're saying. I get tired of writing the same story of Trump and his battle with the media and transparency and whatever buzzwords you want to use. At the same time, I'm not sure how to balance that frustration, that repetitiveness with the idea that Journalism, a free press, is this vital institution in our democracy. And if the commander-in-chief is constantly attacking that institution, isn't it our job to make a big deal? How do we both not normalize it and still focus on the right things?
3: I think we have to think about what's what's the end game here. What are we trying to achieve? Uh, if, if the goal of this coverage is to make people who aren't in journalism care about these issues, if the goal is to make people appreciate why a free press is important in a democratic system, why what we do matters to their lives, why the fact that the president is yelling at us has implications for them. I'm not sure that crying about it every time it happens Further[s] that goal, I think it could be turning people off, and so I think we have to think about what is the best way to make clear that this is important and that this is something that people should care about, but without sort of sounding frankly like crybabies or like just a broken record again and again and again. I think the president is sort of on to us and on to our response. I mean, the truth is that he doesn't have a lot else to hold on to, right? You know, I, I think that there, we need to just think about whether there are other ways to approach this. I mean, I I would go for less frequency and more depth we have been sort of compiling examples of violations of norms in the press and it's this actually an incredibly long excel spreadsheet that you can look at all the cases since he's become president where it's become sort of normalized to sort of talk down to the press that sort of thing is important and I know other people are sort of gathering that kind of information too we have to be honest about this that being bad to the media has been good for the media you mean that it's
0: raised people's profiles?
3: like You and I could name 10 people whose careers have been made by this. We know um, TV networks whose ratings have soared. We know online and print publications whose subscriptions are way up, including CJR.
0: But it seems to feed that narrative that helps Trump, you're saying, right? Like us versus them. Yes, it makes us feel good to celebrate people standing up to the president, us being journalists. Um, but it also makes his support or gives his supporters somewhere to turn their attention other than the lack of legislative progress.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Where where do they go now? Well, where do we go now?
0: What should we be doing differently? If you had Jeff Zucker of CNN and Dean Baquet of the New York Times and Marty Baron of the Washington Post sitting in front of you and saying, you know, Kyle, what should we be doing differently? Where should we be focused? What would you say?
3: Well, we've had this conversation before. We had this conversation after the election when there was a lot of soul-searching going on and people were saying, what just happened? How do we miss this so badly? And how do we move forward? And so we all did a lot of soul-searching. We blamed each other. We thought about this a lot. And we basically decided making ourselves the story isn't really the answer. Um, The answer really is in doing our job and covering the business of government that Trump now oversees, where you know you can you can look at his tweets and you can look at his executive actions and whatever else, but a lot of the real decisions and actions that are going to affect a lot of Americans' lives are happening within these agencies, where there's rules being rolled back, there are people being laid off, there are there there are real changes happening.
0: And it's a cliche to say that the best reporting on any given administration doesn't occur in the briefing room. Is there progress that's going on? Have we... Done better than what we did in the campaign, or are we repeating the same
3: mistakes? I think there's progress. I think there's well, there's certainly thoughtfulness around this. I mean, I think before the election, there wasn't just there just wasn't a lot of reflection. There clearly is that. We we all joke about this business of reporters from the coast going out into the country and it's become a sort of trope where every sort of best western between here and Dallas is booked with network news reporters. And I still think there is a tendency among journalists to make it about our
0: and the thing we're really talking about here is connecting with people,
3: right? Let's pause on that last point for just a second because I think it's important. I, I just think that, um, you know, um, I, I remember in high school, I think it was high school. In high school, I had a journalism teacher that was they, they were just sort of Bang into my head, like it's not about you. It's not about you. The story isn't about you. And anytime it's about you, you're you're wrong. And I just I think that's still true. Even when these attacks are against us, um, we need to sort of turn it back. And and there's some real, you know, there's some there's some great, you know, analysis to be done. Even when even if we're reporting on the attacks on Twitter from Trump, I mean, um, you know, this came up. A lot of this discussion came around the Mika uh, tweets.
0: Right, when he attacked the uh, host of Morning Joe, Mika Brzezinski, about her facelift and right.
3: So, as opposed to just saying, "Wow, you know, look at that," what is there something to be said about what this says about him, and what it says about his worldview, and why he seems to attack women a lot, and and sort of what can we learn about the way the president thinks? Is there
0: anybody who's doing that well who's avoided making it about them and provided the sort of sharp analysis that you can think of?
3: There's a lot of it, I mean, and, and I hate to sort of generalize, but I think it happens, it tends to happen more um, in print and online than on TV. Um, I think, you know, the the TV networks are sort of built to respond. I mean, the Trump Twitter is a sort of perfect TV story because it, it it happens for every, everybody sees it. It happens simultaneously. It's dramatic. There's it something to show, and it is immediate. It's an immediate sort of global talking point. I mean, it was interesting. I had you know at Cjr we have reporters from around the world come into the office and uh, want to talk about stuff. And there was a, a crew from um, NHK in Japan, and I was like, asking them how Trump is sort of playing in the media there, and they were like, "Well, we're, we're obsessed, and we think Abe is sort of similar in Trump." to Trump, which was sort of a surprise to me. But they're also saying that some of the major broadcasts, they break into all news cable stations when Trump tweet, um, which I was astonished by. And well, and I guess that's, that's victory for us that we're not there right now. <laughs> but I was amazed by that. I was amazed by that. And that's, that is the kind of thing we got we to gotta move away from. Well, hopefully we move towards a
0: focus on the impacts that Trump's policies are actually having on people's lives. We saw that a bit with the health care debate over the past couple weeks, and we shall see where we go from here. Kyle, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank my colleagues Meg Dalton and Christy Chisholm, as well as our boss, Kyle Pope, for joining me this week. Please check out all the great content we've got up at cjr.org. And as always, rate, review, subscribe, tell your family about The Kicker on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you and they get your podcasts. We'll see you next week.